In your Bible, the book of Numbers, chapter 13. I'm preaching through the Bible one message from each book of the Bible. And I'm through the book of Numbers now. And yet, as I studied for this past Wednesday night's message on Numbers, I found another message that I just couldn't pass by. So I want to talk to you today about claiming your inheritance Claiming your inheritance. Numbers chapter 13. Please stand with me if you will. Numbers chapter 13 and verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. Of every tribe of their fathers shall you send a man everyone a ruler or a leader among them. And Moses, by the commandment of the Lord, sent them from the wilderness of Paran. All those men were heads of the children of Israel. And then in verses 4 through 16, it names those men, but we will not read that this morning. Thank you, and you may be seated. And so the story here really begins in Genesis chapter 12, not here in the book of Numbers. Over 500 years before, God had promised a man named Abraham that his descendants, the Hebrew people or the Jewish people or Israel as they're called here, that those people would inherit a land for their inheritance. They would be given an entire nation, a country. The land has several names. It's called Canaan here in this passage. You also know that same land as the promised land. And you also know that land as the holy land today. All of those terms are synonyms for the land that was promised to the descendants of Abraham some 500 years before this passage was carried out. You know that in the interim time there, the children of Israel went down to Egypt and they were made slaves there. And for 430 years, they made bricks and served as slaves to the wealthy Egyptian people. Egypt at that time was, of course, the world's superpower. It was the first worldwide dominating power. And the Jews were there helping them build that country literally as slave laborers. And then at the end of that 430 years, God miraculously, supernaturally, uh, delivered the children of Israel from Egypt. You know the story of their, uh, the Passover on the night and then going through the Red Sea where God literally opened up the waters of the sea and they walked through. By that time, they'd become a great nation a great multitude of people. They went down to Egypt, about 70 souls. 430 years later, they left Egypt. They had over 600,000 fighting men. That's why the book of Numbers is called the book of Numbers. Twice in the book of Numbers, they numbered the people to find out what the strength of the army would be. And so they have over 600,000 fighting men, and you can extrapolate that just slightly and know that that would mean 
that, that most of them had a wife and that there, those were the able-bodied men from 20 years old and up. We also know that there were older people, there were children, and so when you add all that together, you have a nation now somewhere around two to two and a half million people that left during the Exodus. During the two years now since they had left Egypt, by the time we get to Numbers 13, it's been approximately two years since they were in Egypt. During that two years, they had spent one entire year at Sinai, at the foot of the Mount Sinai, where you know the story, God gave the law and uh, many of the other ordinances, and he gave them the instruction for building the tabernacle and all that they would need to know, civil laws, ceremonial laws, a legal system, God gave them all of that in order that they could uh, function as a nation. And now they spent another year wandering in the wilderness. So in those two years, one year at Sinai, another year wandering in the wilderness. Now, it's true how God wonderfully provided for them. Oh, did he provide for them? He fed them with manna from heaven, a supernatural feeding of those people, which, by the way, I believe to be a literal truth. And then he provided water for them in the desert. He provided guidance for them through a cloud and a fiery pillar, as it's called, above the tabernacle. He gave them protection from their enemies while they were forming and training their army. But it was still the wilderness. They were still poor, poverty-stricken. They had nothing. They'd been slaves. They had a little bit of gold and silver that they had borrowed from the Egyptians as payment for their 430 years, and most of that was used to build the tabernacle. And so they are poor people, poverty-stricken people. They have nothing in the way of possessions. They don't even have a home. They're living in tents and a monotonous existence, if you will. They're out in the middle of this wilderness. The same thing for breakfast every morning, same thing for lunch at noon, same thing in the evening. A life of monotony, a life of wandering, a life of picking up and moving their few possessions and resettling again for a few days. They'd done that for over a year. And now they're in a little place called Kadash, Kadash. And Kadash or Kadash Barnea, sometimes in your Bible, it's written both ways, was near the border of the promised land of Canaan. They were very, very close now to their objective when we come to Numbers 13. In other words, they were about to claim their inheritance that they had looked forward to for over five centuries. They were about to possess their possessions is a different way of saying it. They were about to realize the dreams that they had held on to for five centuries. It was right there before them. I want you to notice with me today, number one, if you're taking notes, an open day of, an, an open door rather, of opportunity. An open door of opportunity that they had. Hope was the only thing really that had kept them alive for those 430 years of slavery in Egypt. But they knew the promises of God that they had been given. 
I can just picture in my mind how a father would have his little boy and his little girl hop up beside him one evening, and he would sit there. He'd put his arm around them, and he would say to his little sons and daughters, kids, I want to tell you something. We're going through a hard time now, but you know, God has promised us that one day we're going to have our own country. We're slaves down here in Egypt. We've never had any freedom at all. We've been in bondage. We're owned by the Egyptians. But the day is coming. Mark my word, kids. God does not lie. And the day is coming. We're going to have our own land. And someday we're going to have a home. We're going to have a house instead of this old raggedy tent. We're going to have green fields. And we're going to have all kinds of good things to eat in our diet. That's why we call it the promised land. God promised it to us. And kids, we don't have it, but as long as you're alive, you can have hope because God always comes through on his promises. The kids remember the old folks singing, on Jordan's stormy banks I'll stand and cast a wishful eye. I'm bound for the promised land where over in Canaan where my possessions lie. I don't have those possessions right now, but I'm going to have them. One day we will possess our possessions. One day we will lay claim to the promises of God and our inheritance. And now they stood on the border. And the door of opportunity is wide open for them as they stand there that day. Chapter 13 in your Bible, read verse 17 with me. Because then, with that as a background, Moses sends out some men, these 12 men whose names are given there in verses 4 through 12. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. He said to them, get you up this way to the south and go up into the mountain of the hills and see the land what it is before we go in. And the people that dwell therein, whether they be weak or strong or few or many, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that they dwell in, whether they dwell in tents or in strongholds, and spy out the land, what it is, and whether it be fat or lean, prosperous or poor, whether there be wood in it or not, and be of good courage and bring of the fruit of the land back with you. And now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. And so he sends out these 12 spies. They spend 40 days traversing that land, looking at it, probably making notes, making observations that they can come back and report to Moses and to the people about their future possessions, their inheritance that Moses had promised and they were now about to receive. In verse 27, they give their report. And they told him and said, we came into the land where you sent us and surely it flowed with milk and honey. And you see, there's where we get that term, um, a land flowing with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the congregation or pardon me, nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land and the cities are walled 
and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. In verse 27, they said, it's just like we had dreamed about. It's just like we heard. It's just like what we've been told. But in verse 28, they use that word, nevertheless. Circle that in your Bible. Man, that's an important word here. Nevertheless, after they talk about all the wonderful things and extol the beauties and goodnesses of the land, but nevertheless, ah, that injects a negative. It sort of puts a cloud over things, doesn't it? And then they begin to talk about all the people there are strong. And they began to talk about the cities have walls around them. In Deuteronomy, the account is repeated, and it says the cities are walled up to heaven. And then, notice if you will, they talk about the children of Anak there. The children of Anak were giants. So the people are strong. The cities are walled up to heaven. They're children of giants there. And they go ahead and they keep repeating this uh, the problems that are there. Look with me, if you will, in verse number 30. And Caleb, one of the 12, another famous character from the Bible, but he first mentioned here as a spy. Caleb still the people before Moses. And he basically said, enough of that negative talk. Let us go up at once, right now, and let's possess our possessions. Let's claim our inheritance for we are well able to overcome it. He just cut that tens by majority negative report off at the knees. He said, no, no, let's go right now at once and let's claim our possessions. Look down in verse 31. But the men that went up with him said, we're not able Go back to verse 30. Caleb said, we are able. The men that went with him said, we're not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report, a bad report of the land, the Bible says, which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, the land through which we have gone to search is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw giants, the sons of Anak, which come, out of, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. Whoa. Comparing myself to them, we're just like a bunch of bugs. We're nothing. They could crush us. They could walk on us and stamp us out. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. And so we were in theirs. And so you have this tragic thing here, this terrible report right on the verge of claiming their possessions. And 10 of the 12 men give this very, very negative report and say, we can't do it. And Joshua and Caleb, two men, the minority said, No, we can. Let's go in and let's go right now. And so here they stand that day. I want you to notice one thing here in passing too. That that negative report was a gross exaggeration. It was a gross exaggeration. There were no cities with walls up to heaven. There hadn't been any giants 
for 400 or 500 years now or more. There were no giants. The cities were not walled up. The people were not all stronger than they, and they didn't look like grasshoppers in the sight of the opposition. But you know what is so tragic? Self-deception is tragic, isn't it? When we get to thinking negatively and we have no faith, and we began to question the promises of God. That really is a tragic, tragic thing. So tragic. I have a statement here from the Expositor's Bible. I don't usually read long statements like this, but it, it was such a powerful statement, I wanted to share it with you. He describes in detail here in this commentary, the Expositor's Bible commentary, he describes the scene. The malicious report of the 10 spies spread throughout the population like a vicious virus on rampage. The words of Caleb and Joshua were never heard. Everywhere people heard of wall cities, strong men, giants, the fabled Nephilim. The giant clusters of grapes were nothing but a portent of their doom. If clusters of grapes were as great as the ones they brought back, imagine what the people would be like. No one talked about God's grace. Nobody recited his miracles, his opening of the sea. Forgotten was the act of God where the most powerful nation in the world was stymied at the edge of the sea. The thunder of Sinai, the fire of God that he had spoken and delivered and graced his people beyond imagination. All these things were forgotten in their fear. The grumbling belief of the people is emphasized throughout the entire text. All the people, quote. All the Israelites, quote. The whole assembly, quote. Every adult was grumbling and complaining in unbelief. You know, through the years, I've used this one definition of faith over and over. I think it's written in most of your Bibles. I hope it is because it's the best, greatest definition of faith I've ever heard. And if you don't have it written, here it is. Many of you have it memorized. What is faith? Faith is first hearing God's word. By the way, they've been hearing the promises of God from the days of Abraham. That's God's word. When God spoke to Abraham, that was his word. Faith is hearing God's word. Number two, faith is believing God's word. So you hear it, and then you believe it. Faith, number three, is acting on God's word. It's not really faith if I don't act on it. If I don't believe it enough to step out on it, it's not faith. So hearing God's word, believing God's word, acting on God's word, and then fourthly, faith is leaving the rest up to him, leaving the rest up to the Lord himself. So faith, hearing God's word, believing it, acting on it, and resting on it, leaving the rest up to him. Well, that's what they should have been doing. God had brought them here through miraculous uh, events, through supernatural occurrences over and over. And now they stand on the edge of the land and they've all turned negative. They've lost their faith. They've heard the word. They said they believed the word, but they really didn't. 
they wouldn't act upon it, and they had taken it all into their own hands, and there they stood. You know, they should have expected some difficulty. The door, I heard one time something I've never forgotten. It stuck in my mind. It's a great little quote. The doors of opportunity always swing on the hinges of difficulty. The doors of opportunity. When you stand and you can possess your possessions, you're about to be able to accomplish something that God has really put before you. It will be wonderful. Then there are going to be some difficulties. And the doors of opportunity swing on the hinges of difficulties that we meet in life. When they met those difficulties, they just said, we're not going in, and they stopped. It's so tragic what they did because they interpreted God and they interpreted God's Word through the circumstances that they saw. When the opposite is what we ought to be doing, we ought to interpret our circumstances through God and through His Word. But they didn't. And they lapsed into this terrible sin of unbelief. Our literary writers have described this kind of thing to us a lot. For example, James Russell Lowell wrote, Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide. In the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. Shakespeare said it like this. There's a tide in the affairs of men when taken at the flood leads on to fortune. But if omitted, all the voyage of life is bound to be in shallows and in miseries. And Whittier wrote it like this. Of all the sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. Don't you know that in the days to come, sitting around those campfires in the middle of Israel and fathers taking little boys and girls upon their lap and instead of them talking from then about our dream and the promised land and our possessions all lie over there that we can go and claim, now what's the conversation? Oh, I wish, I regret that day that we didn't follow through. In fact, it didn't take them very long to do that. The people repented, but you know what? They never had another chance. They repented too late, and they were not able to go in. So the opportunity number two is lost. First of all, an open door of opportunity, but they would not go in. And number two, the opportunity is lost. Look in your Bible again, Numbers chapter 14. And all the congregation, verse 1, lifted up their voice then after this negative report. And they cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured, complained, griped, criticized, whatever the words, against Moses, against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? We wish we hadn't have even started. We'd be better off being slaves down in Egypt than we are 
trapped out here in this God-forsaken wilderness and unable to go in and possess our possessions. The people believe that negative report and hopelessness and despair now reigned. Complaining set in and spread through that camp like the flu. (laughs) And rebellion followed and reason was overruled. And passion reigned that day. Negative passions. Look in verse 7 of chapter 14. And they spake, we'll go up to verse 6. Joshua, the son of Nun, their future leader, and Caleb, the son of Jephimna, which were of them that searched the land, they rent their clothes. Now, you know, that's an old tradition of people in mourning or in grief or in tragedy. They tore their clothing. And so this overwhelms them with grief and, and, and sadness as the people won't go in. And they spake unto the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land that we pass through to search, it's an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land, and he will give it to us, a land that floweth with milk and honey. Don't rebel against the Lord. Neither fear ye the people of the land. They are bread for us. We'll eat them up. They're bread for us. Their defense is departed from them. The Lord is with us. Fear them not. And the reaction of the people, they took up stones to stone Joshua and Caleb. And notice what happens. Verse 10, the glory of the Lord departed. God's power departed. Because of their lack of faith, their unwillingness to enter in and claim the promises that God had made to them for five centuries. I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, unbelief and faith and griping and complaining about God's will is a very serious thing. And you see it here. Go down to verse 29, 26. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation that murmur against me like this? See, God is is angry at this point. I've heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Moses say unto them, as truly as I live, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. And all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from 20 years old and upward, which have murmured against me, doubtless you will not come into the land that I swear to give to you, except for Caleb and Joshua. In other words, every single adult, 20 years old and older, griped and complained except two men, Joshua and Caleb, I'm going to let them go into the land. Everybody else is going to wander in this miserable wilderness. You wanted the wilderness, you've got the wilderness. And for the next 38 years, they wandered in the wilderness. They could have been in the land. They could have been enjoying that beautiful home and hearth. They could have been tending their cattle out here in a beautiful green pasture and eating milk and honey 
and vegetables and fruits. They could have enjoyed the pomegranates and the figs that are enumerated here in the text, but they didn't. They stayed in that miserable wilderness. God departed from them, took his power from them, and left them there in unbelief so that their bones would bleach in that wilderness, and every single one of them perished. And when that whole generation had died, God said to the young people, come on in, claim your inheritance. That's the book of Joshua. Powerful place. They wasted their lives. They were sentenced to wandering in that wilderness, to never seeing the promised land. Their diet, monotonous, quail, manna, and water for 38 years, three times a day. Their home, a tattered tent. Their dreams, they couldn't have any. What future do you have in that bleak and barren wilderness that they're in? Now, my question. My third point is a question. Are you possessing your possessions? You see, the children of Israel were saved people. They represent saved people. The, the, many of the songs get it wrong. The promised land is not heaven. The promised land is a life of victory here on this earth. The promised land is enjoying God's will and God's plan for us and possessing the wonderful possessions he's given to us. The promised land is not dying and going to heaven. The promised land for a Christian is a victorious Christian life. The wilderness saved people. God saved them when they came out of Egypt. But the wilderness is represented as a defeated Christian life. Where are you today? Are you standing right on the border and you know what all that God has for you, my friend, is available for you today? What are our possessions as Christians this morning? Well, number one, I think about salvation as my present possession. The Lord Jesus Christ has given me the gift of eternal life. Now, I hope today that everybody has received that gift, but probably not in a crowd this size. And if you've never received that gift of eternal life, it is by God's grace. And you can have it today by simply turning from your sins and receiving Jesus Christ, knowing that he died on the cross for your sins. He shed his blood and that he loved us and that through his precious blood, he's cleansed us from our sins, Revelation 1 and 5. And that he longs to save you today. He loves you. You are purchased by his precious blood. And today, as a Christian, and we can say, part of my possessions began with my salvation. It's the most wonderful gift of all. And then, but I have other possessions as a Christian. I have God's word. Just like Abraham had God's word and Moses had God's word, they heard him directly and audibly. We don't, but we have his written word, his infallible word, his perfect word. So we have God's salvation. We have God's word. You know what else we have? We have the Lord Jesus Christ, our wonderful Savior. 
Oh, do you love him today? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? And does he really mean anything to you, or is he just a name, a historical figure? I was reading uh, uh, something written by our former missionary, John Napier. John was a wonderful guy, had his master's degree from uh, Duke University and went down to Australia as a missionary and was there a few years, did a wonderful work and dropped dead while he was jogging one day just a few years ago. And he preached here many times, and many of you remember John. And John said, I was down in Australia and I was holding a revival meeting in a little town in the backwoods there somewhere. And it was this young guy, he had gotten saved and he was on fire for the Lord and he just loved doing the work of the Lord. Sharp guy, wanted to be in the ministry, wanted to come to America and go to seminary. And John said, one night we were carrying tables out and stacking them on the back of a truck and we were sweating and it was hot and it was miserable. He said, this guy, he's, uh, he was talking to me about the Lord the whole time. And John said, this guy said something to me I couldn't ever forget. He said, John, I can't tell you. I just ex can't explain it to you, really. But I just love Jesus Christ. There's just not anything I wouldn't do for Jesus Christ. Well, that's not earth-shattering, except when you compare it to the way most people feel about Jesus Christ today. There's just nothing I'd, I wouldn't do for Jesus Christ. Can you say that today, my friend? He said that for you. He said, there's nothing I wouldn't do for us. And he came and shed his blood. You can't do any more than that for someone, can you? And that old boy said, John, there's nothing I wouldn't do for Jesus Christ. John's writing about it 10 years later in a book. It's so impressive. Jesus Christ is one of our most precious possessions. And then there's the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we get all other kinds of possessions, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Man, we get a character that nothing on this earth can rival and is straight from the Holy Spirit working in us. We get a church. We get to be a part of God's cause. The church is his cause. It's his army. The church is the fellowship of the saints that keep in mind one thing. We have a Savior that we're trying to please. We get something that those people didn't have wandering around the wilderness. We have a purpose. We have a purpose. I can get out of bed in the morning and know I have a reason to be. I can get out of bed and I don't have to say, oh my, what am I going to do with my life today? No, I have a purpose. And that purpose is to honor him. In fact, I have a goal this year I've never had before. Do you know what my goal is this year? One of my goals? My goal is to make Jesus proud of me. My goal is to make Jesus proud of me. And someday I want to stand there and he said, Bill, I'm proud of you, son, because you stood for me and you weren't perfect by any means, but I'm proud of you because you love me.
and you serve me. Those are my possessions today. Here's my question. Are you standing on the border out in the wilderness, the world's wilderness, looking over into the land and seeing what God could do and be to you, but yet there are things that keep you fear, worry, doubt, sin, keeps you from possessing your possessions, from claiming your rightful inheritance as a Christian, Listen to me real close. Hear me now. Don't miss this today. One of these days, you know what we're going to find out? We're going to discover that our greatest failures while we lived on earth were not those things that we did wrong, but the opportunities that we failed to act on. I'm going to stand before the Lord. You know what most people think when, when they think about standing before the Lord? Oh, all my sins. Hey, if you understand the New Testament, your sins are covered if you're a Christian. They've already been taken care of, every one of them. You know what I'm going, what, what, what we're going to look back on and say? It's not the sinful deeds that we did. It's the regret I have that I didn't take advantage of the opportunities that God gave me. I didn't claim my inheritance. I didn't possess my possessions. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.